Have you ever been somewhere that just felt like something really, like it felt really special or maybe even felt like a bit holy, just like, oh, you're kind of in awe when you've been there. Like I think of when, uh, um, like we, when we've been to Greece to visit uh, our family over there, my wife's family and, and just some of the places like when you're at the Acropolis and to think that people have been, I mean, that place has been standing for 3000 years or whatever. I mean, it's just amazing. Or maybe, maybe a church has felt that way to you. I remember when I was four, I, I was convinced that I saw an angel at our Savior's Lutheran Church in rural Princeton, Minnesota. I don't know. I, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. I, but it just had that kind of afterwards, like had that kind of feel through me, right? You know, when I was four, I was sure. Um, I was freaked out, but I was sure. Um, you know, these places sometimes have these really, there's something special going on there. And at least it, it seems that way. Well, tonight we're going to talk about a place that that does really have something special going on. There, it really did, um, in in a really just incredible way. And it's a place that's not so much one set location, but more so a, a structure that was moved around in the Old Testament with God's people. As we look at this place, as we look at this structure known as the tabernacle, it, it's part of this series we've been going through. This "Do You See the Messiah?" series. And as as we see what this place was really all about. And what happened in the most important part of this place? Not only does it point ahead to Jesus, but it really points ahead to exactly what took place on this day, on Good Friday, and what makes an incredible difference for us today as we live our life of faith with God. Today we're going to ask, do you see the Messiah in the tabernacle? The lesson we have today, it's Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 10. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship in also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot go to discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Now, the tabernacle was this incredible building that played an incredible role in this epic time period in all of history. So you think of God's people and you think about how they had been down in Egypt and been slaves in Egypt. And then God brought them out after the 10 plagues. He brought them through the Red Sea, parting the sea. The Egyptians come behind them and he destroys the Egyptians through this, this whole time that he is leading them with this pillar of cloud during the day and this pillar of fire at night. And then he gives them the tabernacle which is this tent structure they were to put together and that pillar of cloud, pillar of fire actually would come and rest over that tent 
so that, that this presence that clearly was visible before them, leading them through the water. Actually, when they got to the water, by the way, um, and I always love this part, like where there's the Red Sea in front of them, and then the Egyptians are behind them. The, the cloud actually goes behind them and hangs out between them and, and, the, and the Egyptians. So it's like you got water in front of you, and you got Egyptians behind you, but then there's God there. So it's like it seems like I'm stuck, but one of the things, one of the sides is God. You know, so something good's about to happen and he opens up a door, right? Anyway, it's just this incredible epic story. And now this cloud rests over the holy place, over the tabernacle, because God is dwelling there amongst his people. That's, that's what this building is. That's what this tent structure was for, for God's presence to dwell there with his people. Now, the lesson that we have today to help us think about it is from the New Testament. And it's from the New Testament because this is a letter that is written to Jewish Christians. So Christians who come from that Jewish background who are facing some real tests to maybe go back to their old way of living, their old way of thinking, to, to let go of believing that Jesus is the Messiah. It would be a whole lot easier for them to just go back. I mean, they still had so many friends who were believing that way. They, they had lost many things, had many challenges. Socially, it was very difficult. And so there's just this, this temptation to go back. And so what this letter does, it goes and points out these various things from the Old Testament, talks about them, but then talks about how Jesus is a better version of them, how they point to Jesus, and then Jesus ultimately fulfills them or completes them in a new and a greater way. Now, one of the things about this, this letter that is somewhat unique is that we're actually never told who the human uh, writer is. We know it's inspired by God. And so that's why you'll hear me refer to the author, the author. Not, you know, usually I'd say like Paul or Peter or so on. And here, we'll just talk about the author. We don't know who the author is, but we do see clearly his intent is to show people who come from this Jewish background. Yes, these were great things in the Old Testament. For instance, you have angels, and then you have the, the law, you have Moses in the promised land, you have priests, and this one specific king, Melchizedek, or priest king, Melchizedek, um, you have sacrifices and covenant, you have all these things, but Jesus is better. And then the latter part of the book talks about then stepping forward in their example of faith, believing for something greater, believing for something better. Because he's going back, this writer is going back and talking about things in the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is better, it's this great opportunity to look in detail at some of these Old Testament concepts, but then see how they point to Jesus. The section that our lesson comes from today is a section uh, that's talking about sacrifice and covenant. And as you look at that section, sacrifice and covenant, where we see the tabernacle here come up, I got to say, it's interesting. When, when I think about the tabernacle, sacrifices come up to mind for me quite a bit. I know sacrifices take place there, and I would have thought that the tabernacle was brought up here because of the concept of talking about sacrifice of Jesus. However, while sacrifice plays into this, the main topic at this point in this book, in the book of Hebrews, is not sacrifice. It's covenant. When you read through the first few verses of our lesson, notice what word keeps coming up. The first covenant. Verse 4, what's at the center of the most important part of the tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant. What does he talk about here? The stone tablets of the, in verse 5, or in the second half of verse 4. The stone tablets of the covenant. The tabernacle is being discussed here 
Because at the center of the tabernacle was this place where God would enact certain things so that there could be a covenant between God and his people. The tabernacle was more than just a, a way for God to dwell amongst his people. It was also a way for God to partner with his people and have covenant with his people. The idea of having a covenant with God and God choosing to have a covenant with his people and partner with his people, it, it's interesting. When you look at the biblical story, I, I don't know if this is something that we, we have talked about that much. I know I hadn't over, over many years. But when you think about it, the roots for this concept of covenant, of partnering with God, they actually go way back to the very beginning. When God created people, and he said, let us make man in our own image, in our own likeness. In other words, God created people to be walking pictures of him and then to do what? To rule over the, the, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, to do all these things. In other words, to rule the world with God. God created us to be walking pictures of him and to rule the world as walking pictures of him. He created us to partner with him. He created people to be in covenant with him. And then if you look at the whole storyline of scripture, the idea of partnering with God and be having a covenant with him is actually is centered to the whole story. It's centered to the rule of Israel. It's centered to the gospel message and centered to what Jesus has accomplished. Take a look. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or... ...and all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much, and that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, 
I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the Earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who is able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. A partnership between God and his people. When you see a, a, a tent, a place, God establishes covenant, establishes relationship with his people. Do you see Jesus? Do you see the Messiah? That, that, let's take a bit more look at the tabernacle. First of all, even just the word tabernacle directly connects us to Jesus. Because if you go to the Gospel of John, and this was actually the verse that we had for our Christmas morning service. We talk about how the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling actually means set up a tabernacle. 
Like if you were reading the Greek version of the Old Testament and then you were reading this, it would be the same word. It literally says that he tabernacled among us. So in the Old Testament, God dwelled amongst his people in a literal tent. In the New Testament, God <clears throat> excuse me, dwells among his people in a different sort of tent, a human body, human flesh. God made his dwelling, set up his tabernacle among us in the man Jesus. So right there, there's that tie, there's that connection between the Old Testament tabernacle and Jesus himself. Now looking at the Old Testament tabernacle, there are two rooms. And in the first room were the lampstand, the table, the consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. So you can see in the, in the picture, you can see the lampstand off to the side. Uh, you've got two pictures of the, the, the bread, also known as the show bread. Sometimes translations will call it the bread of the presence. And you can see kind of a top-down view or a side view. You've got the lampstand and the bread in this outer space. Not outer space, not out there, but in this first space that you come to. To get into that first space, you had to pass through a tent. Well, not a tent, a curtain, excuse me. There was a second space, a second curtain that you would have to go through to enter it. This second space is the one that was known as the most holy place. Now in there, you had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Now these three things all point to God's interaction with his people as he brings them out of Egypt. So we've got the manna. This is how God provided for his people throughout the wilderness. You also have Aaron's staff that budded. And this comes from an interesting story um, where God is really establishing, making it clear who is going to interact with him uh, on behalf of the people, that, that Aaron is that, that priestly line. And so the staff that buds is the one who's, who's chosen by God. And so he really is establishing his authority and his working with, with, with Aaron and with his descendants. And then, of course, you've got the tablets of the covenant. So the commandments there. Here we see these three things all point to God, establishing this relationship, this covenant, this partnership with the people of Israel. So these are the things in the Ark of the Covenant. But then also above it, you have the cherubim of glory. So these are these uh, winged, angelic, spiritual beings that Scripture describes for us here in the Old Testament. We went through these things here pretty quickly, but I'm going to go right with what the writer says in the second half of verse 5. We cannot discuss these things in detail now. Uh, I was giving Pastor Krause a hard time this week. I said, I said hey, you know that, that, that Hebrews text? Which when I said Hebrews text, by the way, he was working on Easter Sunday, which is not a Hebrews text. So his eyes like bulge. He's like, what? Hebrews text? I think he thought I had the wrong text. And, um, and hey, man, good Friday. You know? <laughs> um, but I gave him a hard time. I said, we could do a whole Bible study just on this text. Like there's so much going on here in the, in the tabernacle and all these different parts. Like we could, we, we could go on for a long, long time. We just don't have time to right now. So we're breezing through these things here pretty quickly so we can move on and, and, and really kind of capture the, 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 the main theme to focus on this Good Friday. So you have these things, you have these things in the Ark of the Covenant that, that really show God working with and partnering with his people. You have the cherubim on the top. We're told that when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. So that first room, that first space, priests would go into daily and, and, and do different things in there. This was their regular place to go into. That's where they did their regular priestly 
duties, their priestly ministry. When you look at just that outer room and we look at even the things in the, 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 the most holy place, you might go, okay, pastor, I see, I see that they are about covenant. Jesus is, is going to bring a, a, a better covenant and so on. You see the connection there. But, but where else? Where else do we see it here with the tabernacle? How else does it point ahead to Jesus? Here's where it comes in more. It's here in verse 7 where it says, but, the only high, but only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood which he offered for himself and for the sins that people had committed in ignorance. So that inner room, that most holy place, nobody went in it all year except for one day, the Day of Atonement, and only one person could go in there one day a year. Only the high priest this one time could go into this space. And remember, what, what's in the center of this space? What's the main piece in there? The Ark of the Covenant. Only one person one day a year could go into this place that it's all about God partnering with his people. And whenever he went in there, he always had to have blood. Never without blood. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given things, he broke and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body, given for you, do this remembrance of me. Same way also, he took the cup after supper, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, This is my blood of the covenant given and shed for you. Jesus' blood is poured out. It's the blood of the covenant, the blood of the partnership between God and his people. When you see the tabernacle, when you see a space that has the Ark of the Covenant and only one person one time a year could go in there only with blood, do you see Jesus here in the tabernacle? Do you see the Messiah? The one who would lay down his life, his blood would be poured out for the covenant. Now this space where there'd be blood brought into it for the Ark of the Covenant points to Jesus and just in that that we see this connection between covenant, covenant, blood, blood. But there, there's something else that the writer to the Hebrews brings out. It says, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying to the time of the new order. So what, what he's bringing out is that, that the Old Testament tabernacle it fulfilled its purpose in that it gave a way for God to have covenant and, and interaction with the Old Testament people of Israel, but it also showcased the problem. Because that whole time, remember, only one person one time a year could go into the place of partnership and covenant. There was this big curtain that prevented everybody else from being in God's presence and being in the place of the covenant. There was a, still a barrier there between God and his people. And this had to happen every year, this sacrifice and the Day of Atonement. And there were all these other sacrifices that did all throughout the year, and they had to keep doing them and doing them and doing them. And if you have to keep doing it, the question is, does it actually work? And the reality is, no, it, it, did, it, it really didn't. It didn't have power. These sacrifices that this, this tabernacle set up didn't have the way to really deal with sin. 
It couldn't really bring justice for all the wrong things we've done. It couldn't really remove the guilt between us and God. It couldn't really make it so that we can know we are right with him, that we will live forever with him, and then we can partner with him again. Every time they went through and they did this, it was, it was pointing out the fact that, that something needed to happen to ultimately set things right, to ultimately heal us and God and renew this partnership. And that's what this section of Hebrews that our lesson comes from is all about today. That's why we read uh, the, the chapter that comes before our sermon lesson. That's why we read those verses where this writer is talking all about the ministry Jesus has received, how it is superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. He's saying Jesus is, he's the one who's fulfilling it. He's the one who is completing it. There are these issues with the old one. Jesus is the ultimate one. And if you ever start to question that, well, is this just a New Testament idea? That section, chapter 8, is full of Old Testament quotes like this one. The time is coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He's quoting from the Old Testament, the book of Jeremiah. The Old Testament people were looking forward to a new covenant, the one that would finally do the job of removing the barrier between God and his people, removing our guilt and our shame, so we could partner with him once again. The tabernacle was pointing ahead to a time of a new covenant, which actually, if you look at Luke's account of the Last Supper, he brings out, Jesus doesn't just say, this is my blood of the covenant. Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant. When we think about this day, and we think about Jesus up on the cross, we think about what was happening. What we see, what we see is Jesus' blood being shed for the new covenant. This is the blood that would finally remove your guilt and mine forever. So we can know that full justice has been met, justice has been met for our sins, that all of our guilt is removed, all of it is gone. This is the blood of the covenant that will remove the barrier between us and God. This is the blood of the new covenant that could really renew the partnership. And actually, the, the writer of the Hebrews even gives us a really picturesque way to really understand what was going on. If you go to chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. Do you, do you, do you see the connections that are made? So you think about how in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, you had the curtain that separated the holy place and the most holy place, and behind that curtain is where the blood was brought in, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And this is saying that Jesus' body is like, was like that curtain. And behind his body, the reality that was taking place was the sacrifice being made to put you and I right with God, you and me right with God. Behind his body was God himself absorbing all of your sin and mine, the consequences of your sin and mine, to, to, to pay full justice for those things. Behind that curtain was God experiencing what it's like to be forsaken by God. God loving us to the end, willing to experience everything that comes as a result of our sin so that we could be free of it once and for all. And because that was taking place behind the curtain, 
behind his body, it makes all the more sense why now when he gave up his last breath and his body broke, what happened to the temple curtain? It tore in two from top to bottom. No more barrier between God and his people. No guilt or shame to hold anybody back. When you see the tabernacle, you see a place that is about covenant, about partnership with God that was pointing ahead to someone who would come and break down the barrier and renew relationship, presence, and partnership with him. When you think about this place from the Old Testament, when you think about the, the, this scene, when you see them going and, and bringing things into the place of the covenant, it, it, it points us to Jesus and to the fact that, that that's what he came to do, to restore partnership, to restore relationship. But also, when you look at the tabernacle, you see what the tabernacle couldn't do. You know, it gives us a picture of what Jesus would do, but also just it has us calling out, crying out, wanting someone to come and do what the tabernacle couldn't. The tabernacle showed us what needed to be done, but it couldn't do. In Jesus and in what we see on Good Friday, we see God doing what really needed to be done. We see God fixing the problem and restoring what we were originally created to be. We were created to partner with God, to have life with God, to rule the world with God, and to be walking pictures of him. We broke that. So how did, God, how did God restore his partnership with humanity? By becoming human. By living the life that we were meant to live but didn't and don't. By dying the death we deserve to die. By pouring out his blood for the covenant. So our guilt could be removed. Our relationship could be restored. So you and I can know that we have life forever with him. Where we will live as partners with him once again. When you think about what happened today on this Good Friday, when you look at the cross, maybe today don't just see the cross, but see the tabernacle. See a place where blood is poured out for covenant, where guilt is removed and relationship and partnership is restored. When you look at the tabernacle, do you see Jesus do you see the Messiah?